Hello, and welcome to the Trusted Voices podcast. I'm Teresa Valerio Parrott, alongside Aaron Hennessy, and in each episode, we discuss the latest news and biggest issues facing higher education leaders through a communications lens. For these conversations, we'll be joined by a guest who will share their own experiences and perspectives. Okay, our listeners know we normally start with what are we watching in the news, and we're going to consolidate this for two reasons. One is we have a fantastic guest, and I don't want to cut the time that we're going to give to him to talk about what's going on on campuses and the benefits, implications, and scalability of AI. But there's a topic that I think that we would just be missing the moment if we didn't give just a couple of words to, and that is- is the Grammys? (laughs) <laughs> it is, is about it how, the new Taylor Swift release. Is it about how Beyonce is never one album of the year? Um, you know I love Beyonce and I cried when I saw her. I call her Beyonce because I feel I like know. she's fancy. I cried French, when I saw her the French on that. In, in concert. And I will say that's not the topic. Neither of those topics. Fine. But Be that way. here's what I think we need to talk about because – it is the reality of where higher education is right now. And that is, we have so many tuition dependent institutions, public and private, who are fighting for their lives and fighting for their campus's survival. And this ongoing delay of transfer of data for the FAFSA is really wrecking havoc for our institutions. So in our show notes, we'll have pieces both to what this delay is and what it means, um, but also some of the implications associated with this for campuses. Um, Everything from how quickly they're going to have to turn to package financial aid, to the fact that they may not be able to do this in a way that still preserves that May 1st traditional deadline for student choice. Um, of where they're going to enroll and what that means. And I'm already starting to see institutions, we'll have a link to this as well, that are moving their decision date from May 1st to June 1st. The only responsible thing to do. Right. I I can't believe there haven't been more. I think it's coming. And I think it's because institutions are processing. And for so many of them, that's when they really start to make the tough decisions about what happens this fall, what they're offering. For some of them, how deeply they might have to trim some programs. And they may have already missed some of the official notifications for, you know, some of their contract faculty for what they're going to do this fall. There are so many implications beyond how many students are going to come to our campuses. For some of our institutions, the conversations that they've been having with their boards are going to have to be put off even longer. Yep. And to take a page from what I know is at the heart of the leadership philosophy of of our guest today, Paula Blank, the student impact when we are at a point where we are already talking about disappearing black students, disappearing male students, where we are seeing continued questions about the value and the usefulness of higher education, where we are continuing to see ongoing, very real and very reasonable questions about why we cost what we cost. We are, I think, post-pandemic, you know, we went through this, what, three years ago, four years ago, we are at the danger of losing another generation of students because we broadly, federal government and institutions are not going to be able to make this as seamless and easy as possible for students and their families to figure out if they can and how they can afford to pay for a post-secondary education. And we've talked about this on multiple episodes because I know I started to 
kind of be a chicken little in the fall and have continued <laughs> through recent episodes, just with the timeline and how we had systems in place to encourage applications. Mm -hmm. So I'll also add to the show notes, um, if I can, a LinkedIn post from my colleague Kent Barnes, B-A-R-N-D-S, um, that I've worked with him for about 18 years now. He's at Augustana College and I adore the institution. He had a fantastic post talking about what this means for their institution and what this means within their state because the number of students thus far at the major high schools in his state that have filled out the FAFSA is a portion of what it's been before. Mm -hmm. And so how do we capture those students and present the opportunities that we have? And if we're not packaging until April, right? And March or April, yep. we're missing some of the windows where we could reach back out to students who now know that they can get federal financial aid, but now they will have missed a number of the windows to apply. So there's always the list of which institutions are still accepting applications after May 1st. And I think not only is May 1st going to shift that decision date, but the number of institutions on that list has to increase and we have to find a way to drive students to apply for their FAFSA and for our institutions. And that's a lot to ask as they're getting ready to graduate and move to the next steps of their lives. There are publics and privates, as we know, that have a longer yep. term rolling admissions. And that list of institutions, I think this year, is going to dip into institutions that have never been on that list before. Yeah, you and I just are back yes. from spending a couple of days in D.C., lurking in the hallways at the NICU annual meeting. And if this was certainly a, a large topic of, of conversation on their agenda. What surprised me, and granted, we weren't in these rooms for these conversations, but the general feel, you know, I, I'm not saying I expected to hear shouting and hollering in, in the hallway when the Secretary of Education spoke to the membership, but it didn't seem as, I don't know, on edge, fraught, panicky <laughs> as, as I sort of expected. And I, I would be interested to reach out to the financial aid directors and enrollment management leaders of those institutions and say, tell me about your emotional state right now, because this has theory. to be, uh oh, this has to be, this is panic time. That's I think right, yes. the department tried to tell everybody, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And at the end of the year, oh, don't worry, it's open and 24-hour access, and, and then the next shoe dropped. So here's my theory, Erin. I think it goes back to the old phrase that you never want a competitor to see you sweat. So yeah. I think that they were panicking. It's that inside panic that you don't want to show on the outside because they don't want for other presidents and, and their colleagues to see how vulnerable their institution might be or what uh, the devastation could be from the outcomes of this. Yeah, but when you're all in the sauna together, Oof. everybody's sweating, ah, you know? I, every, but I, I think you don't, sweating. you never want to let them see you sweat, right? Let's go back to that. But I Let's, think that's the case is that they're trying to preserve the image and reputation of their own institution. And you want to make sure that you're doing in that a metered way. But we talked about this on our last episode. This was one of the topics that I raised. And then we talked about, I think in December as well, we've been talking about this. Reach yep. out to your financial aid colleagues, give them a hug, <laughs> ask how they're doing, check in, on, check in on them. Because the other worry I have is 
I think they and our marketing and communications colleagues are going to get the brunt of the fallout from this for something that was put into motion by the Department of Education. And I also think that their jobs are going to be so much harder and for some of them nearly impossible in what was already a difficult season and is now being made that much more stressful. Agreed. And and I think, you know, coming back to where we started, this is an opportunity for institutions to really set aside the way we've always done things. This is what our policy says. This is the flow chart we go through and the steps we go through and really try and find some creative ways to stay in contact with your students, to reassure mm-hmm. your students, because this also impacts your returning students as well. It's going to say um, yes. Yes. So this is the time to really start thinking creatively. And we've seen some institutions do it about ways that you can allay their concerns, but also be creative about the ways in which if you have the resources and capacities to do it, the ways in which you can upend the system and maybe put students back at the center of it rather than the process, the forms, the data, the, the, I'm not suggesting we violate federal regulations. Let me be clear, but to the extent that we can be creative, this is the time to do it. Agreed. And I love that you talked about retention because it's not just first-year students that fill out the FAFSA. It's any student. And that's the key is that retention is going to be that much more important. And those students who are used to getting packaged right now because they've been with you are also feeling vulnerable. So more to come on that. We have an episode scheduled for later this spring that we'll really dive into this as well. But know that we've been talking about this. We will continue to talk about this. And we are sending TLC and hugs from afar for those who are in the thick of it as well. Yep. Well, let's get to our conversation. Let's do it. With SNHU President Paula Blank. We are absolutely thrilled to have with us today Paula Blank, president of Southern New Hampshire University, affectionately known as SNU. Paul is a highly visible and vocal advocate for the power of innovation in higher education and the ways in which it can extend the reach and impact of post-secondary credentials. Since 2003, under Paul's leadership, SNU has grown from 2,800 students to over 160,000 learners. That number is probably already out of date. And the university is the largest nonprofit provider of online higher education in the country. Paul immigrated to the United States as a child and was the first person in his extended family to attend college. And in December of 2023, Paul announced that he will step down from the presidency in June of this year and take a sabbatical year to focus on the topic of our conversation today, AI and its impact on higher education. We'll include a link to Paul's full bio in the show notes. And because we value transparency, I do want to note that Southern New Hampshire University is a TVP communications client. Paul, welcome to Trusted Voices. It's great to be with you. This is fun. And we have an update. It's 250,000 students now, Aaron. Holy moly. We'll we'll get that changed on the web. No worries. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's <laughs> phenomenal. Congratulations to you. And yeah. Paul, I'm so excited I get to ask the first question. And I'd love for you to walk me through what some people may view as a paradox, but I think you probably have an answer for. And that's that you've noted, and Aaron just mentioned, um, that you're going to be working on AI in higher education, and you're going to be writing a book about it as well. And in your most recent book, Broken, How Our Societal Systems Are Failing Us and How We Can Fix Them, you really talk about putting people at the center of our work. Are these two ideas in conflict, or, or are they complementary? And how are you thinking about them right now? Yeah, not only do I think they're not in conflict, but I think they're actually necessary that we hold both of these things in hand together. Um, hmm. I think for so many people, the prospect of AI is scary because it feels like it's going to displace us. You know, people will right. only half joke about, you know, when our AI overlords wipe us all out and decide they don't need us. You know, they'll save the electricians, but everyone else is in trouble. <laughs> but, um, but, but more more generally, people are really fearful, like, what does this mean for my job, my livelihood, my ability to take care of my family? And, and they're not wrong to worry about that because I do think AI is going to dramatically impact our workforce. And we can talk about that if you like, but I'm in the camp that thinks everything changed on November 30th, 2022. I think the world is now fundamentally different. And to the extent that universities are knowledge factories within a knowledge economy, and we are no longer the most powerful entity on the planet in terms of declarative knowledge, I think we better start asking some big questions. And the big questions for us is, you know, if you think about the made the college major as fundamentally, I'm going to strip this way down, but answering the question, <laughs> what do yes. I need to know to be an X? What do I need to know to be a lawyer? What do I need to know to be a nurse? What do I need to know to be an accountant? Fill in the blank in any way you like. Um, when everything you need to know is sort of a prompt away, maybe we have to start thinking differently about what are universities for? And mm -hmm. George Siemens, who joined us, and George is, I think, one of the top three people in the world when it comes to AI and education, George has argued that the fundamental shift we will see in the future is a movement away from the epistemological questions, what is knowledge, what do you need to know, et cetera, to more ontological questions. How do you need to be as a human being? Higher Ed says it addresses those, but it's a pretty haphazard approach if, you, if they do it at all, right? Like, oh, we're going to put you in an intentional community. And if you take your humanities courses, you'll be a better human being. And if you get involved in social events and service learning and study abroad, all of that will help you grow up to be a better human being. We don't know. We don't measure it. We don't have any real sense. And we don't have a lot of intentionality around it. It's more of a, hey, here's a smorgasbord. Knock yourself out. Right. We may have to start thinking now about what are these questions of being, you know, these fundamentally human things that AI won't displace. So right. if you think about, we do so much knowledge training around what Chris Deedy at Harvard calls reckoning, the ability to understand and predict. If computers are much better at that than us, what we have to be really good at is a higher order skill, which we value greatly, called judgment. Right. Judgment is a different order. It's wisdom, it's nuance, it's where creativity and meaning making, it's empathy, it's all these things that are almost impossible to program into an AI. You can create illusions of empathy, you can create illusions of humanity. But look at if at some point we have AI systems, and I believe this will be the case, it's already the case in some areas, if we have a future in which AI is better than a physician at diagnosis, and God forbid you get a terrible end of life sort of diagnosis, 
it is not AI, which will then sit down with you and have these very distinctly human conversations about, well, let's talk about quality of life. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how you want this time to be. Let's talk about how you're going to go home from this appointment and talk to your family about this. Let's talk about your resource. Tell me about your faith. Tell me about your support systems. Tell me about how you walk through the world. Like that's a fundamentally different thing. That's where humans excel. So, so I have a follow-up question to that. Yeah. And that's that as you're talking about this, you're talking about empathy. Layered in there is humanity. That builds towards relationships and that leads to trust. And I think there is a bridge to be built because as people are thinking about AI, so many of them are thinking where you started your answer, which is about how does this impact me in the workforce? But where you're ending your answer is how do we relate to each other? How do we build that bridge and what what makes up that bridge? Yeah, and that bridge is a little frayed, as you might have noted if you read the newspaper oh, in, general. in the last five years or longer. Yeah, so I think that if the trust is the question about how do we build trust between human beings again, and what we're building, and I know we'll talk about this at some point in this new model that George and I are, are working on with others, is really like how do we now integrate and embed things like community? And I don't mean community as a hey, tell us about your context, but actually like how do you leverage and create and find space for community in the learning? So much of what we do removes people from their worlds. Like you go off to a campus to study, you log on and mm -hmm. you're in this box. But what if we can embed learning back into your context so that we contextualize learning for starters? We don't have a one size fits all. So I think that's one piece. And I argue in the book, Broken, that there are actually tons of jobs that need these skills. We just don't, as a society, tend to value them. Like we need yeah, to right, flood right. our K-12 schools of great teachers, counselors, social workers, coaches, et cetera. We need to rebuild a mental health care system that's just been decimated, right? Clinicians and others. We need to rebuild our, our criminal justice system, which has failed and we jail, right? So, the, But AI will not do any of those things. Exactly. We will have to grapple with, as a society, what happens when knowledge jobs don't get paid very well because AI does it better? And how mm -hmm. do we start to shift our resources uh, and our supports for these other works? And that would be a good thing, Teresa. Like, part of us breaking down in our society is that those systems are failing us. I agree. Um, and if we can revitalize them, I have some hope and optimism about what America looks like in 20, 30 years. I, you know, I went through this period of, in this last year of trying to think about how to make people feel reassured that AI wasn't going to shake their world up. Mm -hmm. And after this revelation, I was like, I don't know. It needs some shaking up. Like, what's working well for us right now? Like, what part, okay. of this, part of this milieu is working for you, right? Yeah, um, I think that's okay. Because if we aren't reflecting where we are, how are we going to get people to buy into its potential? Yeah. And, you know, Aristotle, the rhetoric says you can't have a discussion or a debate about what should be till you can agree on what is. And right now right. we live in a post epistemological world. We, we, we live in a post truth world. It's very difficult for people to even agree on reality. So we're going to have to have a relationship again, because it's in that, that so here's what people don't trust. They don't mm -hmm. trust institutions and they don't trust expertise. Like Correct. We're seeing that through these through these uh, surveys, whether it's the trust barometer or it's there's some new Pew research that has come out. We can put links in to both of those. That you're exactly right. It's the institutions and it's the titles and it's the structures that are really being called to question. 
Absolutely. So you have doctors who are now having to put signs up that essentially say, my medical degree is a lot more valuable than your 10 minutes on WebMD. Like, like <laughs> right? It's yeah. just like, trust me, like, stop, right? Stop with the craziness. And, you know, we have to have people convincing parents that measles vaccines are probably a good idea. Like, what happened to this country where this is an issue? And look at their reasons for people to distrust, right? If you, mm-hmm. if you remember the the analysis of why was there greater resistance to the COVID vaccines among communities of color? Well, because vaccines have been used in terrible ways, right? And so I get that, but in the absence of that, then you have to think about a different way of engaging people. And I think it's in relationship. Like I was just thinking about this in terms of university presidents that when your title and your authority are no longer going to carry the weight, you're going, I think we're entering into the era of relational leadership where it's mm-hmm. actually going to be yes. people know you and say, oh, Teresa's like, she's like such a good person. If she says this, I really need to think hard about it. Well, maybe but not. But what you're saying is, hey, but maybe yes. Or maybe yes. <laughs> what you're maybe saying yes. <laughs> aligns with the advice that we give. And that is, it is so hard to be seen as a person if you only represent yourself as the title of president. So you have to add some humanity. And this, I like how you're talking about this relational approach to leadership, because I think that's going to be the key to rebuilding the trust that we talk about. And we approach in the same ways we always have, which means we aren't listening. Yeah. And I feel like I'm a broken record on this. I feel like there's a parallel there to what you're saying, Paul, to the, the old whatever you want to call it, adage about, I hate Congress, but my guy's okay. Because you see your congressperson in your community, in your district, you can see their impact, you met them at the fire hall, you saw them in the July 4th parade, whatever it is. And so it's much easier to connect with them as a person while you hold this institution at a remove and with some degree of scorn. And I think for higher education, it's the same kind of thing. Our institutions need to engage in retail hand-to-hand politicking, small p, because that's how we start to turn the tide. It isn't an ad council campaign. It isn't a Super Bowl spot. It is the institution in my backyard understanding who I am, what my community needs, and helping to provide it. And I'm going to just say, though, I think, Aaron, to that point, I think you're right. But I think for there is a generation that that um, analogy isn't going to connect with them because for younger for Gen Z, for a number of millennials, their member of Congress hasn't been meeting with them, hasn't been at the local parade. And as positions, going back to Paul talking about positions that are losing trust, there hasn't been that connection because we don't gather in those ways. And those who are leaders in our community aren't convening us in those ways. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe this is a call to community. Yep. I actually, I I think that's exactly the the case. And I think it's a call to, for leaders to demonstrate your humanity. Um, I was thinking back to the 2004 election when arguably John Kerry was infinitely more qualified than George Bush, was more accomplished. I think he's sort of a smarter person, et cetera, et cetera. But George Bush was the person people said he'd be like a nice guy to have a beer with. And I know he simplified that and said, oh, what a bunch of yahoos that thought that was a criteria for president. But what they were really saying is, he seems like a nice guy. Like, he seems yeah. like a human being I would like. We want to like our leaders. Yes. And 
So I think when I think about leadership and its challenges today, which are incredibly hard, we're in a hard place for, for presidential leadership. And I think about the hearings, you know, and when you're asked, is genocide, is a call for genocide ever okay? If you answer like a smart academic slash lawyer, you see what happens. If you simply say, no, never. You have lots of space and time to do the context later on. So it wasn't that their answers were, no one thinks they're racist. No one thinks they're anti-Semitic. No one thinks they're not smart women who are capable leaders. But what was called for in that moment, I think, was a human answer. And what they got yeah, was right. a holistic answer. Agreed. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's another podcast episode in the conversation about how George Bush positioned himself as the average guy who wasn't elite and and then you look at the pedigree and go, yeah, that's that's a hell of a branding effort that you pulled off there. But that is not this podcast. That is another podcast. Um, I also think that sometimes we don't push that question another step because I think in some ways we stop with the, um, you seem like somebody like me. But actually mm -hmm. the real, I think, next step is, I feel like I would matter to you. Yes. And I think it's that sense, it's the first chapter of my book, Unbroken, it's called Mattering. Like, I need to feel like I matter to you. And I think one of the questions I would ask is if you sort of walk across a campus or an institution yep. and talk to people, like, do you feel like you matter to this institution? Do you feel like mm -hmm. you matter to leadership? A lot of people wouldn't like the answer to that question right now. Yeah. Well, because again, there is a vulnerability associated with that. And over the last number of years, so many people have done everything they can to provide um guardrails around themselves and their careers. And that means that we've lost vulnerability and authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's yeah. right. I think that's right. Salesforce is a proud underwriter of Volt's coverage of AI and higher ed. How can your institution unlock meaningful value from AI throughout the student journey? Salesforce AI delivers trusted, extensible AI grounded in the fabric of the number one CRM platform. Create customizable, predictive, and generative AI experiences that increase faculty and staff productivity and build learner relationships for life. To learn more, visit sfdc.co forward slash Salesforce for education. Okay, well, I'm going to bring us from theoretical down to tactical. <laughs> and I think this connects to our, our previous conversation. I think one of the things that makes people, to your point earlier, Paul, so nervous about AI is just an unfamiliarity with it. They don't think about the Alexa in their kitchen. They don't think about the ways in their car. They don't think about, you know, how Spotify is figuring out who to feed them after you and I listen to all of Jason Isbell's music. Who do we get next, right? But I, I think there is a generation of students that will be coming to our institutions, coming to our campuses, traditional age students who are going to be much more familiar, much more comfortable with AI. They've grown up with it. They are messing with it right now, creating visuals and, and written work. How do we think about closing the gap between our students and their comfort and familiarity and our faculty and staff? How can we shift that mindset from being anxious to being excited or at least being more curious and less terrified of what this means for them as individuals, but for higher education as an industry as well? Yeah, so it's multi-layered, I think, Aaron. The, on one level, 
uh, it's encouraging people to play and giving them mm -hmm. some support for that play. Like, okay, you tell me I should play with these tools, but which ones and how do I use them? And there's learning curves. And so I think, you know, finding that kind of playground that is well supported, facilitated, encouraging people to play. Because the more familiarity, of course, right, is, you know, you're afraid of what you don't know. And they start, to, oh, wait a minute, this is pretty powerful. I can use these tools in different ways, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's yeah. another level. So that's the very organic and sort of, you know, grassroots sort of approach to that question. On another level, I think you do need some top-down guidance and guardrails, like guys, mm -hmm. I'm gonna think about these things and here's, yeah. here's what's good, what's possible and not possible, what we'll do and what we won't do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then I think in the middle ground, I think you need to bring, and this is always the case with, I think all change management in the end, you have to start creating a vision for what's possible because it's very right. hard for people, for the trapeze artists to let go of the one they're holding on to if they can't see the one that's coming towards them, right? That, yes. that looks like I might fall to the floor here if I don't catch that one. I don't even know what that is, right? So I think for leadership, and I, I fear that we don't have enough people with clarity of vision in a particular institution to say, here are things we can do. But if you're a faculty or staff member in a small private non-selective institution that's really struggling financially, you might say, yeah. look, there's a lot of power in AI for us. Like mm -hmm. there are ways that this will help us thrive or at least survive and then thrive. So we've got to start articulating that for people. And I, you know, how that happens, I think we're very early. It's a very early in the, in the process. But, you know, there's a great book called Power and Prediction by three economists from University of Toronto. And they talk about the way that institutions, organizations will deploy AI as point solutions. And I see that at SNHU sort of across the board, HR, curriculum development, creative, et cetera, et cetera. That's happening everywhere, in, I think, in higher ed right now. And then, mm -hmm. uh, and you'll get all kinds of productivity gains, like good things will happen from that. Right. And you'll get facile with the tools. Separately, they argue, you need a clean sheet of paper system redesign. And that's a different body of work. Your question yeah. is is rooted in the first, which is how do we play the rules of the by the rules of the game, but use these AI tools to be better at it? The second task, a system redesign, is more of that Clay Christensen disruptive approach, which is how do we use AI to change the rules of the game? Like we don't right. want to talk about playing by the rules of the game, we want to change the rules of the game. I was with a president, God, time's a flat circle, let's call it last week. And he was speaking to a group of senior uh, student life, residence life, student housing professionals. And he said, everyone on every one of your campuses should have access to the paid version of chat GPT. So I guess that would be four at this point. And sitting in the back of the room, I thought, that's great. Number two, have you done it yet on your campus? But also number three, I'm terrified because they, we don't have those guardrails yet. We don't have policies yet. We, you know, we can see, I don't know, fill in the blank, some really well-intentioned, big-hearted member of the administration creating a Taylor Swift deep fake video to invite people to midnight study hall during finals. And then we're off to the races when somebody spoofs the director of public safety who says, hey, I lifted the keg ban for the weekend, you know, and I, I applaud the willingness to push the envelope. But I wonder how we start to think about policies that are sort of to your point, more systemic and not this went sideways. So we need a policy here. And this went sideways, you know, it a more proactive, yeah, yeah a more proactive reactive. policy approach. And, 
you know, I got my first email address in college. And at that point, I wasn't thinking about policies at all. But I sort of wonder, because you've done research and work in this area previously in your dissertation, how did we do well? And how did we drop the ball in creating that policy framework around introducing the internet itself to our campuses and institutions? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, we did pretty well um, in introducing PCs and before we had the internet, we had local area and wide area networks. And right. that's when I began my study. So I was like, you know, when I was studying the Model T, but um, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you masked my doctoral work. And um, where we then, so that in that area, we dropped the ball because that's a hardware question and it's certainly unlocked opportunity. But it's yeah. really actually when the internet comes along and now offers us lots of interconnectivity where I would say we dropped the ball terribly and most vividly so when it came to social media, where I think yeah. we have paid a terrible, terrible price, particularly our children. We basically did a national experiment without their permission on their brains. That's a great example of not thinking through the policy implications. And as you know, there is a fine line here, a calibration, because we can't predict everything. And if we over, over regulate in the front end, then, right? So there's an old axiom, right? That the best policy follows practice. So you do a thing for a while, but you're attentive to it. And what we did with social media, I think, and the globe did, but the US is prone to this, which is a kind of laissez-faire, let's kind of see how it works out. So, you know, George is often saying about AI, you know, in China, the approach is, Let's use AI for the of the state. Let's use AI for the good of the whole. And in that case, we look at, oh, holy cow, like what they really mean here is state surveillance and control, not great. Europe has taken a kind of classically European middle ground. So you have to say things like anytime there's an image that's generated by AI, you have to label it so, right? Wherever you use AI and content creation, you have to label it. So like, these are certain steps, right? They say, okay, there's a transparency there that's very helpful. And then as George said, the U.S. is the Wild West. The U.S. is like, see what happens and this will be fun. Think about how we just came full circle because we were talking about how we can't just be reactive about this, but then the approach that we're taking and using your words, Paul, because I think they're right, is let's just see how this works out. And if we take that approach, you're going to end up with a reactive response. Yeah. So even thinking no about response. how we're framing this, exactly, how do we even start to set that up from the beginning so that we are more strategic, so that we are forward thinking, so that the ways in which we approach this don't end up being CYA, but instead they end up being fundamentally ingrained and important and thoughtful for where we go next. Yeah. yeah. So in 25 years, we're not talking to Paula Blank Jr. who's saying, man, we dropped the ball on integrating no, AI. He, no, Paul LeBlanc Jr. would say, Paul dropped the ball, right? Because we'll be looking <laughs> back. Hey, 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 let's not go down that road. Um, <laughs> so this is where I think, um, and I've, I've made this argument in other venues, which is we have a desperate need for philosophers and ethicists and people who are not much in the AI conversation, right? Oh, wait, now. those in the humanities? Is that Ex- what you're saying, Paul? Ex- exactly, exactly. <laughs> and we need those voices in the conversation to think through these questions. And then I think we need to be really clear and any provider with whom we work needs to be very clear. We need to demand a kind of transparency about first principles. So right. in the work that we're doing 
in this other thing that I'm doing post SNHU called Human Systems is the name of the company with George and others. You know, our first principles are radical student agency. So students get to control what data gets accessed. The second is you can always interrogate the underlying data models. Like, what do you think you know about me? Like, that's really powerful. Like, you can't do that with the algorithms that drive your presence in Amazon, for example. They have constructed right. a model of you. Um, so the second is absolute 100% student ownership of their data. So they get to consent or not consent, sign off, sign on. And you can't use kind of administrative burden to obfuscate that. So you can't make, you know, so everyone who's ever read a licensing agreement, like you just scroll to the bottom because you're impatient and hit the agree. <laughs> like you gotta make a really, really clear act of consent. So I think there are first principles in design that we can demand of those with whom we work. And part of what we're trying to do right now, and we get some support from the Gates Foundation on this, is to build a global data consortium. And we have lots of providers putting their hands up to say we want in. And part of that would be the kinds of rules of the road that you're talking about, Teresa. Right, so right. We would use that data consortium to say, all of us in higher ed who are contributing our data, here's our agreements and how to use that data ethically, how we think about AI in this contest, et cetera. So we don't have the answer today, but we have the basis for the conversation that needs to happen. I'm going to have us do a little bit of a hard pivot because I want to piggyback on something that you're talking about. If we're thinking about AI and where it is in our lives, if we're thinking about how prevalent it has been, if we're thinking of how to talk about what it is and its impact, I think that you are uniquely qualified to share with all of us how AI has been used and has been scaled for impact. And specifically, what I'm thinking about is the ways in which Southern New Hampshire really has been an innovator in its adoption and the advancement of competency-based education. And I raise that, I've worked on CBE communications for years, but I'd love to hear from you how you've advocated for competency-based education's value, because I think that there are words and approaches that we can learn as we talk about AI and its use in higher education so that it is more understandable and relatable and we're talking about outcomes. Yeah, and I think one of the things, I will stay with your question, but we should also talk about the ways in which I think AI will actually fuel the movement towards CBE. Because I agree. if competency-based education is about what you can do with what you know, that's going to be the critical question in the age of AI because you can know everything. But what can you do with All that? of this is about personalization. And to your point, meeting people where they are and expanding what they can know. And yeah. if that's the case, that's why I think the competency-based education discussion is so important because we have been there, we have done it, and you have led the institution that has been most successful in it. Yeah, WG might disagree and say they've been more successful, but, but I think- yeah, I'm not know. on the call, so. Yeah, go, go ahead and contact us, so Western fun. Governors. We would love to chat with you. Teresa's <laughs> <laughs> cell phone number is. Exactly, no, and yeah. while we're at it, Michael Crow, if you have some time, give us a call. Yeah. But I, I think that there is, going back to the numbers that you were talking about at the beginning of this episode, at the very least, Paul, the case can be made. Yeah, no, no. And thank you for saying that. Um, I think when I've talked about CB in the past, what, you know, and, and like all of us who are out there making the case, you test language, you test framing, you test right. narratives. And I will tell you what has resonated most deeply over years now of kind of making this case, which is to simplify what feels very complex to people and say, it really boils down to two questions. 
what are the claims you are making for what students can do with what they've learned? Mm -hmm. Like that's a, that's a straight, what can your students do? Hey, um, you know, computer science department, what will your students be able to do with what they've learned in their time with you? Now, where it gets really interesting is we ask that question of the philosophy department. Hey, philosophy department, what will your students be able to do with what they've learned in their time with you? And I always make the case to the humans, like, you should welcome this question. There is a reason why McKinsey yes. recruits philosophy majors, like graduates, because you have real competencies that are super valuable. Critical thinking skills, communication skills, skills with language, uh, mental models, right? Like all of these things are very powerful. So that's the first question. Second question is, how do you know? What's your form of assessment? And really with CB, as you know, you're talking about performance-based assessments. What are the ways that your students demonstrate that they can do this thing? You're talking about do statements. So when you bring it down to these two things, now those like you can spend a lot of time unpacking both of them, but now people start to get a mental model for what we're talking about. And when you're talking about the folks to the folks who sometimes feel most threatened, in this case, for example, the human is like, no, 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 this strengthens your case. Like this is a good thing, yes. right? They struggle with that, but I think that's been really, really important. I think also so, the the yeah. Oh, I have a question about that because yeah. if I were to boil that down to two words, what you just said, you're suggesting that people lead with the outcomes, and they support that with evidence. Yeah. And I think that is such a that's such a basic way of making a case, but sometimes we make this too hard. Yes, it is, and there's a lot of higher ed that doesn't want to do that. Like that's a kind of oh, accountability, agreed. right? There's yeah. a kind of accountability yeah. in saying, here are the claims. I'm wishy-washy about what my students know. I won't even know how to assess. What do you mean, how do I know? So I do think right. that it actually, so this is the second piece that this leads us to, which is this is a more rigorous model of learning. We've been sliding by too easily. Yes. We're graduating too many people who can't do the things they're supposed to be able to do. Um, this will be harder on us. So the camp that thinks CBE is a lesser than, you're flipping it and saying, ah, actually, it's a higher standard. Like, let's talk about that. So there are ways you can start to sort of reframe the conversation, I think. And then the last one, of course, that you always hear is that, well, it's good for vocational stuff. Like, oh, I get it. Like, yeah, I'm a huge supporter. <laughs> like, great. Like, want my electricians to know how to you know, wire my house. So you have to sort of, again, reframe. And I, I use my philosophy example all the time because it lifts you out of the working with my hands, like working with your brain. And that usually resonates. But you know, it's an so it's, a, I, it's a it's a it's a case we're still trying to make. I think we are still trying to make it, and I still even it's interesting as I mentioned that CBE is AI. Sometimes people have to stop, and then they're like, "Oh, it is." And when I talk about CBE and the quality of what you can get in learning outcomes, I think there's still such a distrust. So I think it's a, a model for us to think about how you have approached it, and then for us to expand on as we think about AI. Yeah and its communication. Yeah, so let me give you one example, and it's actually bored from CEB, and I use it all the time in talking about AI, which is AI will take out, will displace lower and middle level knowledge work, which means that mm. our education has to raise the bar, not lower the bar. It's not like yes. we will be displaced, like our cognitive demands are now higher. And the example, I was having a conversation with writing faculty, and I was a writing teacher in my past, and, I, and they were saying, we should ban the use of chat GPT in writing classes. And I said, really? Because I would sort of do just the opposite. Like, I would almost demand that my students use it. And they're like, but, but then it's not their writing. I said, well, let's talk about what I would also demand. What I'd also demand would be, 
I want Appendix A to be all the prompts you used to both generate yes. and improve the writing. The second appendix, Appendix B, will be show me all the ways that you improve the generally speaking kind of middle level mediocre writing that AI produces. How did you put it in your own voice, right. for example? How did you adjust for this particular audience? How did it make it sound like you? And then the third appendix, Appendix C, would be tell me how you verified all of the factual information that's produced by the uh, AI. Veracity. Yep. But to do yep. those three things, you actually have to operate at a higher level. I agree. And we're hearing that from faculty, that those who are embedding AI into their curriculum are finding that the art of asking the question that gives mm -hmm. you the outcomes that you need means that you need to engage with the content at a deeper level. Absolutely. So as they're helping students refine, how do you ask a question to get to where you really need to be? It's making them add in not just details, but sophistication and processing and sense-making and all of those things into how they develop their questions. And they are seeing that students are getting to a deeper place with the content, but also stronger writing because they're having to build that on the front end. And then to your point, adjust it on the back end. You know, on, on one hand, it's just another form of writing. We teach them to write cover letters. We teach them to write, you know, research-based sort of academic prose, we teach them all of that. I would think it's at the core of the mission of higher education and of our institutions to teach our students how to responsibly use tools. Yeah. We take them in their first semester to the library and introduce them to the research librarian and teach them about, I'm going to date myself, how to use the microfiche and the microfilm. Do those? Do we still have those in libraries? Um, uh, you'd be surprised. I mean, I think they're still there, but I think that now it's all digital. So yeah. really, you get on a Zoom and you meet with the librarian, and they walk you how to through how to do exactly. scholarship exactly. online. Yeah, but I mean, it would just be a dereliction of duty if we didn't teach them how to use the newest tools. Yes. To do the work, and I teach graduate students, and I can't release them as PR practitioners into this world without giving them every possible tool that they can use to do their job better. I just look at it as the same sort of thing. Yeah, I wholly agree with you, Aaron. I was talking to a president who said, you know, how should I think about, I said in a Inside Higher Ed piece, all curricula is now out of date, like globally, it's all out of yeah. date. He said, mm -hmm. what am I supposed to do with that? It's like, honestly, I bring my deans together and say, I need you to do a methodical department by department, major by major assessment of what yeah. are the tools my graduates will need to use today in this discipline or in this you know profession and have a process for updating and sort of, you know, always returning to that. And then how will they use them? Like, you need to be thinking about this. Every faculty member needs to be thinking about this. Yeah. yeah. And I think what you're talking about, though, is you're talking about asking the tough questions. And what I would say is that I think that that has been a through line in your leadership. And you've been recognized for that. So Southern New Hampshire was named number 12 on Fast Company's list of the world's 50 most innovative companies. And I would say, and I would argue, that it's rare for higher education to be recognized anywhere <laughs> as innovative, which means I'm interested in how you got there. How did you balance your, your leadership style, which I'm hoping that our listeners are able to hear is so different, snooze potential to meet its students' needs, and we talked about competency-based education, but you've implemented so much more than that, and the opportunities that technology presented to reach that kind of status and how would you have used AI had it been available to you to be even that much more innovative? 
Yeah, it's a, such a it's a great question. Thank you. Um, you're, you're being you're giving us probably more credit or me more credit than I deserve because um, I could recite for you all the so. places <laughs> where innovations you know fell down or stumbled. And, actually, and that's part of that's part of becoming innovative, isn't it? Yeah, being taking right. the risks to make the change so that you are on that leading edge. I think that's that's a, that's a part of that path. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So I know this sounds like the thing that we're supposed to say, but it really it started. It always starts with mission for us and the job mm-hmm. we're doing for what student. And that's a phrase for those who are familiar with it. That rings. It's a Clay Christensen phrase, and Clay was a friend of forty years and was on my board and. Who's to say I knew him before? We met playing basketball in a gym in Cambridge before he was famous. <laughs> but, you know, I think, and the reason I say mission and the job to be done is that the choices you make about innovations and what kind of innovations and how you think about those innovations really have to be rooted in a clarity of vision for who you're serving and why. Yes. We did a sort of study, a kind of academic exercise, if you will. And the place that we looked at, we said, this is kind of where we want to emulate. This is really good at, at sort of taking innovation and service of mission was Boston Children's Hospital. And the phrase Ooh. we kept coming up with is innovation and service of humanity. So when we talk about innovation at SNHU, it's never for its own sake. It's how do we innovate to make higher ed available to our population, yeah. which is the 45% of Americans who say they would struggle to come up with an unexpected money for an unexpected car repair. Like, what does that look like? So our innovations tend to drive down price. Our innovations okay. tend to recognize and go deep on, wait a minute, when we tie a low-income learner to a traditional schedule, a time and a place, that's a structural inequity. Like, if I don't, like for huge swaths of the economy, Employees don't know what their schedule is next week. So how do you ask them mm-hmm. to be, you know, on campus Wednesdays at four? Like that does that doesn't work. Yeah. So I think there was an approach to thinking really hard about this. And then rather than innovation in a scattershot way, like let's try a bunch of stuff. Some will fail, some will succeed. It's actually a very disciplined playbook. And that playbook kind of takes innovation in three buckets. The first bucket is how do we play by the rules of the game of higher ed the way it looks? but do it better. Mm-hmm. And I think higher ed actually has a good story to tell, a better story than people give us credit for. Um, I remember being at a little Marlboro College in the rural, you know, rural Southern Vermont. And when we got a T1 line, when that was still a thing, like a fast internet connection, all of a sudden overnight, our students studying astronomy had a direct link to the Hubble Space Telescope and their world was changed. Like that's improving quality, innovation. Second is how do you play by the rules of the game, but do it more efficiently, smarter, more agilely. And that tends to be on the administrative side. Higher ed has a mixed bag at best on that side of things. Yes. In part because the legacy systems with which we work, are just not that great. And I don't think we've done a particularly great job and that we're okay. But the third is what I alluded to earlier in this conversation is what about when you want to change the rules of the game so your students are better served? And, and that's where I think where we've done our best work is when we've tried to think differently about the rules of the game. But for I think this is hard because for a lot of institutions, the rules are pretty rigid and they don't want to play outside those rules or they struggle to do so. Are the rules rigid or are the people who are following the rules making them rigid and themselves are rigid? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to separate out, right? And as right. Tolstoy said yeah. at the beginning of Anna Karenina, you know, all happy families are the same, but unhappy families are unhappy in their own way, something to that effect. So every institution is different on this. I do know 
I, I mean, I have a deep conviction, I should say, no, but my sense is that, you know, the more endowment you have and the longer tradition you yeah. have, the harder it is to innovate. Like, it's just hard because, you know, places, like, if I take a look at the big innovative schools in the U.S., the ones that always come to mind, none of them were sort of well-endowed and long-standing. They all were hungry to be, to play. I have role. a theory for that. I have a theory about that. Tell me. And I think it's because, um, and I studied this so much in my doctoral degree about mimicry within higher education, yep. right? And how is it that we perform mimicry? We're really looking at the status of other institutions that have higher rankings or, you know, um, image and reputation than our own institutions. Yep. But here's why I think you're different and maybe you've been more successful on that innovative path. And that's because you didn't define who you were looking at to learn from as an institution of higher education based on their status. You talked about service to who they, who their audiences are and who it is that they're focused on. And yep. you went outside of higher education. And I think that's something that we could learn so much from. It's not just what are the Ivies doing or the top 25 in U.S. News and World Report or whoever might be within our aspirational peer set. You're saying... If we get to the core of who we serve, how are we serving them? And that, I think, is innovative right now in higher education. Shouldn't be. It sounds so I'm obvious and right. simplistic in a number of ways, but that takes leadership to have that kind of focus because you have to ask the hard questions and make the tough decisions. Well, I also am guessing, I'll crawl into Paul's head, and I have to imagine there weren't a lot of models to mimic anyway for yeah. what you were attempting to do when you were attempting to do it. And yet we still try to apply yeah. higher ed models, even if they aren't the right fit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and my team cringes when they hear me answer this, respond to this <laughs> question. So here we go. Um, the models we had were the for-profit online providers in the beginning. Yeah. Right. And what right. we wanted to do is say, what did they actually do? Well, there was a reason yes. that they grew so fast and got so big and it wasn't all predatory admissions. In the beginning, it was because they got really, really focused on non-traditional learners and how to serve them better. I know we, it's really popular to beat up and recite all the sins of Phoenix, for example, but early yes. Phoenix yes. actually had a lot to teach us about, and we can't use this phrase still, customer service. Like, do we have to make our administrative processes miserable? Do we have to have the opportunity <laughs> it does if it ever comes? Right? Like, yeah. So yeah. early, those early online providers did a lot of things we could learn from. And then we looked at it and also said, how do we not commit their sins? Like we don't, and you know, right. part of that was that we were right. not for profit. So our world was better. That was really the only model. But we also, you know, I went and spent time at the Open University of the UK, which had created in the 1960s. And while it mm -hmm. did not become a massive online powerhouse, its models really deeply inform a lot of online programs. Now, so much of innovation is not out of whole cloth, like you had a brainstorm, you know, like Einstein thought experiment, and you do the math later. It's actually taking a lot of practices that exist in the world and then bringing them together in a new combination with a real right. clear focus on what you're doing. And in some ways, you, you have both alluded to the fact that we've lived with AI for a long time, but there was a catalytic event and that catalytic mm -hmm. event was natural language input. So when ChatGPT comes out and all of a sudden I can talk to my computer, world changes. Now yeah. I, I, as a layperson, can control AI, not just use AI products that are embedded. So when we go back to your question, I think, you know, we looked at those models, 
you know, we started thinking about what are the best practices and putting those together. We got laser focused on our students, laser focused. So I remember an exercise where we took a whiteboard. There were only 18 people working online at the time. And I said, walk me through the process where someone says I'm interested in SNHU to when they matriculate in their first class. Like all the steps, right. like yay, no, go, no, go, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end, it looked like the schematic of a nuclear submarine. It's like, I was a wonder anyone mm. enrolled. Like, what the hell? <laughs> and then we set out to start to streamline. And because for our learners, even things like chase down your transcript, that's hard. Like, wait <laughs> yeah. a minute, what's a bursar? Like, I have to send $10 to something yeah. called a bursar. And then they told me to call the registrar and da, da, da. And by the way, I work till 5 o'clock and I pick up my kids and I get home and they've been right. closed for an hour and a half. So right. we said, okay, let's make this really easy. Just click here on the website and give us permission, we will chase down your transcript, we will pay the wow. fee. Like, we just take the grit out of the gears. And still yeah, today, you know, that. still today, there's too much grit in the gears. And we, we it's a it's a race without a finish line. So we're always working at this. It's funny, because when I think about that innovation story, some of the least sexy parts of it had to do with under the hood, rethink your systems, your business rules. Like yes. everyone wants the breakthrough idea. It's like, wait a minute, roll up your sleeves and look hard at your own practices. Yeah. And you be willing to have the breakthrough without the work. Right. Yeah. And you're talking about doing the work. Exactly. The work. Yeah. Yeah. The other point in this story that I don't want to lose is the fact that in addition to having 250,000 learners across the country, around the world, you also have a campus that serves yes. primarily traditional age yep. students and you're innovating there as well, both taking the innovations that have worked for your online students and saying, how do we apply these to brick and mortar residential, yep. but you did campus reimagining. You have driven down the cost of that residential experience. And I, I don't want to miss the SNHU story around innovation is not just online big distributed education. It's also impacting a small residential campus. And that has so many lessons for so many institutions across the country. Yeah. And I think, thank you. It's a talented team that's been leading that work. And like all small residential campuses, that was a part of our budget that was operating at an operating loss. And they've brought that down mm -hmm. dramatically. And part of that is, again, discipline and focus. We really, you know, higher ed's not really good at cutting things out. Some of it was the good benefit of being able to leverage our very large online operations. So now all of a sudden a student on campus can seamlessly integrate online courses. That means it's easier to work. It means they can do, right? It's just a lot of things open up if you allow that. We didn't allow that for a while. It was so kludgy. This goes back to that business rules question that um, if you wanted to take online courses as an SNHU campus student, you had to withdraw, literally withdraw from wow. SNHU. Now that was a systems thing. We made it we made it easy, but what an absurd yeah. thing, right? Like why can't I just yeah. integrate, right? And I do think our campuses are going to have to have our residential campuses an enormous amount of flexibility and fluidity in their future academic programs. Students are going to want, you know, we often use this phrase, just the right kind of learning at just the right time in just the right way. Like, Aaron, what do you need this semester for the things right. you're trying to do with your life? And for right. our it's the, learners, what do you need, right? Because we ask these questions, but it's um, it's a rhetorical question. And you are actually asking it and following up on what you heard. Yeah, and you actually are pointing to probably the larger argument here, which is, I think, historically, 
higher education has mostly been about universities, institutions, and not about students, no matter what they say yes. about the institution. Yes. The major is largely a one-size-fit-all experience. You are lucky to be in our community. This is what we are. Mm -hmm. Apply to us, and we'll say yay or nay to you. I think yep. the fundamental flip that's now happening is that students are saying, no, that, that doesn't work for me. 52% of Google searches are for non-degree programs. They're voting yes. with their feet. We've seen this debate about ROI. So they're demanding something quite different. And I think what we're trying to work hard on, what we've tried to do at SNA2 is what happens when you generally put the individual student at the heart of the work? Yeah, right. Yep. Paul, you've been enormously generous with your, with your time with us today. I'm going to ask you one last question, sort of step outside the, the AI topic for a bit. Um, you are perhaps one of the most outspoken presidents in the country on a wide variety of topics. You are willing to say those things that a lot of presidents and senior leaders think, but don't say out loud. And we're in this moment right now where presidents seemingly can't win for trying. They're either not saying enough, they're saying too much, they're saying the wrong thing, they're talking to the wrong people. Uh, I wonder how you sort of got to a point where you looked at what many would perceive as sort of a risk of being really outspoken about issues outside of higher education and how you decided to sort of be that authentic voice regardless of what that risk might be and whether or not you feel like you've ever paid a price for comments about hot button issues. You can tell that I, this is a communicator's question and one that's yeah. very front and center for all of us now trying to advise presidents on how to be their authentic selves without making themselves, their institutions vulnerable and without you know really getting in the way of the work. And I feel like you've navigated that pretty well. Yeah, I can tell you, Aaron, I, I know the places where I've got it wrong. I mean, I know, for example, that early in the in the Trump years, you know, I'd be on social media saying thing about Trump and the GOP and his followers, and upset a lot of our more conservative employees who had been Trump supporters. So, realizing that, I reached out and said, "Have lunch with me." Like my default every time is, "Come talk to me." Yeah. Um, when LGBTQ employees weren't as happy with the progress we were making in policies, same thing, like, please let us sit down. You know, and it's always served me well to sit down with people who disagree with you. So in the case, the first case, I stopped talking about Trump supporters, but I was really being critical of was Trump. And I'm very careful to make a separation between the man who I think is a genuine threat to our democracy and understand there are a lot of people who support him for a wide variety of complex reasons. Right. Right. Um, and people I love, my brother, which you know, we, we can't talk about this, but but I listen more than I did before. So I think yes. I was reaching out. In fact, Paul Fain would tell you that he did a piece in 2011 when we were really on a roll and things were happening. And I, you know, my I was getting lots of good press clippings. And then I just had this lurking, slightly paranoid sense that there were people unhappy with me on campus. So I kind of had a sense of who they were and I sent an invitation to them saying, you know, would you have dinner with me? Because I know you, you you don't like what I'm doing. You just don't like me, blah, 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 blah. And we closed the door and for three hours, I listened for 95% of the time and asked questions and just wrote a lot yeah. of notes. And um, at the end of that, what I had to acknowledge was that while I still disagree with them on a lot of things, they were right on some things that I had to be more thoughtful about. And because I listened and changed, it changed the atmosphere. Like 
people felt heard and it mattered and they saw some changes. Yes. So you can't just be like doing the, I'm listening to you. Like if you feel like oh, you listen to me, but nothing changed, but right. something changed, right? It was the second most shared article on the chron- in the Chronicle that year. Wow. Which tells you something about what higher ed was needing and feeling at the time. And that was an easier time yeah. to live into it. But, you know, a price beyond that, like for me, the price is always like, I'm not serving my own people well. So it was important to reconnect and adjust. After Charlottesville, I did get a lot of death threats. And so much so that the team reached out to the local um, U.S. Marshals to say, what do you make of this? Now, honestly, what they made of it was like, we don't see the things in these threats that signify a genuine yeah. threat. Um, so I didn't lose sleep over it. But there was a little bit of heightened campus security scrutiny. Sure. And, Um, But I think you just brought us full circle to where we were before, and that's that you were talking about empathy and humanity build relationships and trust. And the processes that you just talked about and how you described your book, Broken, all of that means that you're not just writing about it, you're living it. Trying. You know, we're all flawed human beings, so you do your best you can. And I'm sympathetic to everyone who's navigating Gaza because Gaza is extraordinary hard discussion to have. People are seeing it in their right dinner tables. They're seeing it with family and friends. Um, the sides are so polarized. So part of what I've been trying to do, and I think what I've so come to adopt is, first of all, take stands on what you, what talk about what you are for, not what you're against. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? And when you talk about what you're for, you can talk about your institution, its mission, its commitment to civic dialogue, and free speech, those things have to kind of go hand in hand. You are for Mm -hmm. the respect of all human beings. So when you talk about, because right now, when you talk about what you're against, you're losing stakeholders and groups, and it becomes a, it's a different argument. It's not, that that sounds very blithe, I don't mean it to, because it's a very hard one for, I think, all leaders, but probably the greatest, one of the greatest moments in my professional life, I was really touched by it as someone who, long head imposter syndrome was winning the Hesburgh Award because there are people mm, yeah. that before me that I just idolize, like a Freeman Hrabowski, for example. These are heroes. And Ted Hesburgh himself. And there's a new documentary if anyone has if you haven't seen it on Hesburgh. And it was a good reminder that those times were tougher. I mean no one's blowing up and burning buildings as they did in the sixties with ROTC buildings on campus. No one dear God is shot. Knockwood, Paul, Knockwood. Right, Knockwood. But I mean um, but that was a tough time, and it was interesting to watch how Hesburg navigated those waters. He didn't get it right all the time. Mm-hmm. He expelled students who were sitting in his office, and at a time when that was kind of a death sentence in terms of your further education. Now, if you yeah. were expelled, you'd like you'd enroll somewhere else because everyone's having enrollment issues. Um, <laughs> was, back then, it was a very different thing, and you know, longtime friends turned against him. But I do think at some point you also have to decide where are your lines? You know, I love Hamilton, yep. the uh, musical that I know it's a little bit problematic now in retrospect, but you know, if you don't know, if, you know, if you don't know what you'll stand for, what will you die for? What will you fall for? Um, I do think yeah. you sort of think about those lines as well, but in the middle of all that empathy and humanity, like talk to people. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think that reflects a uh, comfort, that you have with being vulnerable and being open to that kind of feedback that a lot of presidents, because they feel so under attack right now, are very reluctant to lean into. And I think that is a differentiator for you. And I'm going to take that one step further because I was on the same 
page. And that is, I think the other thing that you bring to this, especially for your internal communities, and I think this is where this is necessary, is you have a sense of humor. And again, that is one of those places where you are making yourself more vulnerable and you are really opening up as a person. And for that reason, we'll add it in the show notes. I have one thing I have to say to you, Paul, and that is peppermint, Paul. (laughs) We'll share a link to the holiday um, card that SNU sent out this year because both he and the president-elect were able to have some fun. And sometimes at the end of the day, we have to remember that we're people and we're working with people and there can be a place for humor too. Absolutely. Paul, we so appreciate you making this kind of time for us. We know you have a very long to-do list over the next five months. Um, and this conversation was just an absolute treat and it was an honor to have you. So thank you for making time for it. Thank you both. It's always fun to, to spend time with you and talk about these things. Thank you so much. I'm flattered and honored. That thank you. Thank you, Paul. Well, yeah. how great was that? I think this wrap-up's actually going to be pretty quick for two reasons. One, we were chatty. And two, he's just so good, we don't have to unpack it because he said it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, I was I, I think most presidents we speak to five months shy of their, you know, the end of their appointment are finally starting to feel a little free to say the things that that yeah. we don't always hear presidents say, but Paul's never been that guy. So um, <laughs> it's it's delightful to see him uh, be consistently frank and open, um, and be really willing to. I was I was impressed to to hear him be really open to saying, yeah, there are things that I look back and I I wish I hadn't done it or I wish I had done it differently or we could have done it better. And I know it's easy to to sort of. I don't want to say demonize, but sort of look at SNHU and say, well, that's not relevant to my institution, the way we approach education. And to look at Paul as sort of the poster boy for that. But I just think if you sit down and talk with him, you just can't help but really be engaged in his vision for higher education and the possibility and potentiality of how we can, to his point, move students right back to the center of what we're doing. And I think there's this reality, and I'm glad that you raised that they have an an physical presence in a in a campus because that mm-hmm. is the history of the institution but it's too easy for yeah. us to think he's only looking at online innovation and lose track of the fact that he's also looking at more holistic inner innovation for the industry and i think yeah. that's one of those areas that some people are choosing to bypass and i hope that for those of you that don't know about their campus that you go and investigate them and you look to see how they have kept tuition affordable and how they are messaging about what they do and going back to the way that he talked about both sharing what you do and then giving the evidence behind it what are the outcomes what is the evidence it's again such a simple concept but he has done it brilliantly and it's working. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a 20-year tenure is just a remarkable hitch in this day and age. And to be continuing to push and push and push right up until the end of his service as president, I think is just, it's interesting to watch. I also think it's going to be really interesting to watch the transition. I know the the SNHU community is super excited about the president-elect, Lisa Marsh Ryerson, who is currently serving as the provost and previously was 
president of Wells College in Aurora, New York. So I, I think it's just a fascinating time to be watching SNHU and taking lessons from them in terms of how we serve students, how we engage people in leadership, and how we undertake a really responsible and really smooth transition as well. And I would encourage boards to think about how SNU's board has thought about leadership continuity. So if Paul is this innovator, Lisa is an innovator, but she's also someone who is looking to go deeper into what has already been developed. And so I do think there is this potential to think about what the sequencing of presidential skill sets should be and making decisions for your institution so that you are moving forward, but you're also moving all of your successes with you. And um, I give kudos to that board for how they've approached that decision and what comes next. Yeah, it can't always be innovation, innovation, innovation. There needs to be innovation and then time to sort of bake that into the DNA of the institution, make sure the resources are where they need to be, make sure that the, to Paul's point, the the ability to assess what we're doing is there. So it's a fascinating institution and it's an honor for us to work with them. And it was an absolute thrill to spend an hour with Paul today. Yes. And I love getting to that measurement. You know, the old phrase is you measure what you value and he is measuring the outcomes and the impact and the difference that a SNU degree makes for its graduates. And that's where we should be. Yep. That's the perfect way to close it out. Thanks, TVP. Thank you, Erin. Thank you for joining us for this episode. You can find links in the show notes to the topics and articles referenced, as well as a copy of the show's transcript on the Volt website, voltedu.com. Remember that you can always contact us with feedback, questions, or guest suggestions at trustedvoices at tvpcommunications.com. Be sure to follow Trusted Voices wherever you get your podcasts, and we invite you to check out Higher Voltage, another podcast on the Volt Network that is hosted by our great friend, Kevin Tyler. Kevin explores the evolution of higher education that is happening right before our very eyes. Until next time, thanks to Aaron Hennessy, DJ Housechild, Aaron Stern, Nicole Reed, and the Volt team for a great episode, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.